Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Befriending Our Brokenness, Lessons from Maurice Sendek. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 29, 2012. One of the many gifts that my wife gave our children was reading aloud to them. A favorite family book was Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak, who died this past May from complications of a stroke. It's a story about a mischievous little boy named Max who wears a wolf suit. His mother scolds him as a wild thing, to which Max responds, I'll eat you up. Sent to his room without supper, Max dreams of grotesque monsters who roared their terrible roars, gnashed their terrible teeth, rolled their terrible eyes, and showed their terrible claws. Max conquers the beasts by staring into all their yellow eyes without blinking once. Where the Wild Things Are has sold 20 million copies and catapulted Sendak to international fame, notwithstanding its controversial content in curmudgeonly author. Maurice Sendak was born into a family of Polish-Jewish immigrants in lower-class Brooklyn. A sickly child, he spent hours drawing in bed. He experienced the Depression in World War II as a youngster. He once described the Holocaust as a terrible situation that haunted his family with its shadow of death. Growing up gay in that time and place was terribly difficult. All I wanted was to be straight so my parents could be happy, he told the New York Times in a 2008 interview. Despite living with his partner, Dr. Eugene Glenn, for 50 years, Sendek said, quote, they never, never, never knew, end quote. Sendak understood the tragic character of life and the dark nature of the human psyche. In a 2009 interview, he said, I have serious flaws, and I think they come from a time of one's life when one is very young and they stick to you like glue. And then things change when you get older. You're doing what you want to do. <coughs> You're very lucky. Oh, the books, the books, the books. The prizes, the prizes, the prizes, the prizes. But it doesn't matter that you've done a hundred books. It doesn't mean anything when people say, I read your books, I like it so much. People do say awfully nice things, but it doesn't change the fact that you're a stinky person by nature. This sense of personal brokenness overshadowed Sendak's enjoyment of professional success. And so, instead of safe and sanitized children's books, Sendak plunged his young readers into a scary and vulnerable world. King David might have been a man after God's own heart, but he had his dark side, too. Given that most ancient peoples divinized their kings and sanitized their faults, 
It's fascinating how the Old Testament reading this week from 2 Samuel 11 paints an unflattering portrait of the royal family. The parallel version of this story in 1 Chronicles 20 even omits David's adultery. The story is about uncontrolled human desire for Bathsheba, about a powerful king exploiting the vulnerable Uriah and then killing him. Instead of leading his troops into battle, David remained in Jerusalem for an adulterous liaison. And his personal failure brought tragic consequences. We read <coughs> in chapter 12, verse 11, Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and, when I, and I will take your wives before your own eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. But David was no exception, nor are we today. Many of the major characters in the story of redemption are presented as deeply flawed people. Abraham was a liar. Jacob defrauded his father and brother. Moses was a murderer who resisted God's call. Jonah complained about God's mercy to the pagan Ninevites. Peter denied that he would ever deny Jesus, but then did so three times. And all the disciples did the same thing. Paul lamented that he was the least of all the apostles for his persecution of the church. In his powerful autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, the Trappist monk Thomas Merton contrasts two ways of living Christianly. The exterior or external self, he said, is a life of self-impersonation, superficiality, alienation, conformity, indulgence, and narcissism. I quote now, Reflect sometimes on the disquieting fact that most of your statements of opinions, tastes, deeds, desires, hopes, and fears are statements about someone who was not really present. When you say, I think, it is often not you who think, but they. It is the anonymous authority of the collectivity speaking through your mask. When you say, I want, you are someone, you are sometimes simply making an automatic gesture of accepting, paying for what has been forced upon you. That is to say, you reach out for what you have been made to want. The basic and most fundamental problem of the spiritual life, said Merton, is this acceptance of our hidden and dark self. Given the insecurities provoked by our admission of failures and the punishment for them by others, it's tempting to deny, rationalize, or attempt a personal makeover. This is natural and understandable, but it gets us nowhere. We all long to be loved and accepted for just who we are and where we are, and that's precisely what God offers us. But as Frederick Buechner writes, that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. Little by little, we come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth in hope 
that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. David's famous confession in Psalm 51 reminds us that candor and contrition are our best friends. The story of David and Bathsheba shows how God uses even our worst sins in redemptive ways. Our best Christian guides have always observed how God brings good out of evil. St. Augustine wrote, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to allow no evil to exist. The contemporary Frederick Buechner writes, sin itself can be a means of grace. The 14th century mystic Julian of Norwich once said that sin will be no shame but an honor. Anthony DeMello writes that repentance reaches fullness when you are brought to gratitude for your sins. And finally, Thomas Aquinas gave us the startling phrase, O Felix Culpa, in reference to the fall of Adam. O fortunate crime. <coughs> in other words, the fall of Adam, with all its catastrophic consequences, triggered something far better and greater, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. About the same time that Maurice Sendek died in May, I read Richard Rohr's new book, Falling Upward. It's what you might call a spirituality of imperfection, or successful failure in the second half of life. The genius of the biblical revelation, writes Rohr, is that it refuses to deny the dark side of things, but forgives failure and integrates falling to achieve its only promised fullness. And for books this week, I review Richard Rohr, Falling Upward, a Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life, San Francisco, Josie Bass, 2011, 199 pages. The Franciscan Richard Rohr has been an ordained Catholic priest for 40 years, written some 30 books, and traveled the world as a speaker on the spiritual life. His most recent book recommends a spirituality of imperfection for the second half of life, what you might call successful failure. This stands in stark contrast to the way most of us live in the first half of life, establishing personal or superior identity, creating various boundary markers, seeking security, and perhaps linking to what seem like significant people or projects. These tasks are good to some degree, and even necessary, but you don't want to live the second half of life with a first half spirituality. In John 21:18, Jesus tells Peter, when you were young, but when you grow old, in the second half of life, we move beyond the infantile grandiosity of youth and embrace the mystery of finding our true self. Gerard Manley Hopkins describes this in his poem as Kingfisher's Catch Fire. 
Each mortal thing does one thing in the same. Deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself. It speaks and spells. Crying what I do is me. For that I came. In the second half of life, we acknowledge that failure is normal, inevitable, necessary for personal growth, and one of the primary means of grace that God uses in our lives. The way up, says War, echoing the gospel, is the way down, and vice versa. Rohr's book aims for a broad readership, so he's just as likely to riff on Homer's Odyssey or the Dalai Lama as Jesus or Paul. He'll often refer to Christians in the third person. This raises an important question about the relationship between the gospel and other spiritualities that Rohr never addresses. Others might question his heavy doses of Jung. I found his frequent use of italics and exclamation marks distracting. But I still appreciated this look at the second half of life, and also can recommend two other recent reads. Wendy Lusbader, Life Gets Better, The Unexpected Pleasures of Growing Older, and Carl Pillemer, 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest American. Both of those latter two books are also reviewed at journeywithjesus.net. Richard Rohr, Falling Upward. For a movie this week, I review a documentary film called First Position, 2011. This dance documentary falls six ballet dancers from six different countries, ages 9 to 19, as they prepare to compete in the Youth American Grand Prix in New York City. It's life as a never-ending performance competition, subject to how judges score your five minutes on stage. And with the pressure of scholarships to prestigious schools and contracts with dance companies on the line. For much of the movie, the parents and coaches are even more interesting than the dancers. Whose ego is really on the line here? One tiger mom admitted, Some people say I'm in too involved in my kid's life, but I never want to regret that I could have done more. She was devastated when her son stopped dancing. The work ethic of the kids and the sacrifices of the family are remarkable, and the question naturally arises whether they enjoy a normal childhood. The film clearly answers this question. No, they don't. But whereas some of these kids are pushed by their parents, a few of them were gifted to dance. They're doing what they were hardwired to do. 5,000 dancers enter the Youth American Grand Prix each year. The film ends with the six dancers in the final rounds. First Position has won several Indie Film Festival awards.
And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a bit of poem by Prudentius. Prudentius lived from 348 to 413. The title is Father Most High Be With Us. Father Most High Be With Us, unseen thy goodness showing. In Christ the Word incarnate, in spirit grace bestowing. O Trinity, O oneness of light and power exceeding. O God of God eternal, O God from both proceeding. While daylight hours are passing, we live and work before thee. Now ere we rest in slumber, we gather to adore thee. Our Christian name and calling of our new birth remind us the Spirit's gifts and sealing to firm obedience bind us. Be gone, ye, ye powers of evil, with snares and wiles unholy. Disturb not with your temptings the spirits of the lowly. Depart, for Christ is present. Beside us, yea, within us. Away, his sign, ye know it. The victory shall win us. A while the body resteth, the spirit waketh ever. Abideth in communion with Christ who sleepeth never. To God, the eternal Father, to Christ, our sure salvation, to God, the Holy Spirit, be endless adoration. Prudentius, Father Most High, be with us. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, July 29th, 2012, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.